Coming to you direct from the heart of New York City all the way to wherever you are, you're listening to the VIP Jazzwall Report. At some point in every marriage, I'm sure that both parties have thought what it would be like if they went their separate ways. And today, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to be talking about some of the issues surrounding the world of divorce. Here's an irony that I noticed. The word divorce in itself is a seven-letter word, and if you think about it, the cause of divorce usually arises if one of the seven deadly sins are committed in a relationship. Lust, sloth, wrath, greed, gluttony, envy, and pride. Most marriages are destroyed in some way, shape, or form from one or more of these seven sins. In some of my previous shows, I talked about the challenges of falling in love. In this show, we talk about the challenges we face when we fall out of love. My guest is Ariana Jarrett, who's a divorce mediator, a certified divorce coach, and content contributor to sites like DivorceBuddy.com and YourTango.com. Welcome to the show, Ariana. Hi. How are you? I'm doing really well. Thank you for having me. Well, so many questions and such little time, so I'm going to get right to it. Um, Why is it that when most women who come to you during divorce express a wish that they prefer their husbands would die rather than go through a divorce? You know, when I refer to that as a wish Mm. that women tend to have, and it's women who see me as, coaching clients or when we're talking privately mediation it's also friends of mine who you know we talk on the side about what's going on in our lives in our divorce situations and and what it really comes down to is that it would be easier divorce is just an excruciating process no matter you can go about it in the absolute best ways possible with all the best intentions possible with all the money in the world Mm. and it's incredibly painful and the way I really look at it is that when you get married, what's the vow that we all talk about? It's the till death do us part. And death is really what would be the natural end to a marriage. And we don't think about that consciously, but that's really what we're saying. This will end when one of us dies and well, not before. Well, I mean, I agree with you in, in, in a hypothetical world, but wouldn't it – I mean, this – preference of that they would die, isn't that a vindictive preference as opposed to a a theological or theoretical one? It's certainly not a theological one, but Mm. I don't think it's necessary. Sometimes it's vindictive. I mean, certainly there can be tremendous anger and tremendous hurt, and if there was an infidelity or some type of hiding of financial information, then certainly that could be a part of it. But it's really... You know, human beings are truly narcissistic animals, even if it doesn't rise to a pathological extent. Mm. And when, when a woman is saying that she wishes he were dead, it's not because she wishes that on him. She wishes that for herself, that she wishes that her life were easier, that she wasn't going to lose her home, that she wasn't going to have to share her time with her children with somebody else, that she wouldn't have to fight somebody. Or share so the family wealth. Or share the family wealth. Right. Um, so what do the husbands say to you? Well, you know, I've heard men bring it up separately mm-hmm. and say, you know, I overheard my wife talking about this, you know, that, that she said that she and her friends would rather see us dead, and I feel really hurt. Mm. And, you know, don't, doesn't she love me? And, and the thing is, when, when somebody passes away, all you really think about is the love. It's easier to love. Because you're, you can think about just the good memories, and you don't have to be dealing with them and fighting day after day. And I can certainly understand. You know, listen, if I heard somebody saying that they wished that I were 
dead, even if it was just a passing momentary mark. I'm sure there have been plenty of people who've thought that over time it's okay. Right. You know, but but it's it's important for men if they do hear that, if they do hear me talking about this, to understand that it's it's not against them. It's really that a, the wife is saying, I wish my life were easier. And maybe to look at it as, okay, she doesn't really want me dead. She wants her life easier. How can both of our lives be made easier right now? So why doesn't she, she say that she should die? You know what? Plenty of people do. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's, that's really unfortunate as well. I mean, I, I don't think that I would necessarily say that people are suicidal during their divorces. But, yeah, I mean, I think that that, that thought passes one's mind. Well, you talk about hurt. So can there ever be such a thing as an amicable divorce in, 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 in reality? Well, amicable is one thing. Mm. And hurt-free is another. Right. Right. So amicable, sure, you know, you can go about it and be friendly and get along really well and do it all together. In my experience, I think amicable is a little bit of a misnomer, I think it's really um, more amicable. <laughs> right. You know, I mean, I can, you can be friendly, but you don't have to be, or it's more difficult to be friends. It's easier to be friendly. Right. And what a lot of us who work in the divorce field talk about is less about trying to be friends and more, especially if you have children together, that it's, it's more of like a collegial uh, relationship. You're, you're like business partners. Right at this point. And you don't necessarily have to be their best friend and want to hear about the details of their life. You certainly don't want to hear about their dating life. But you can be polite to each other and talk on a logistics level about what needs to be done. You talked about the divorce field. Now, in your case, what's the difference? Because you're a divorce coach and you're a divorce mediator. What's the difference? Well, when I'm mediating a divorce, I'm acting as a neutral third party, so I have no interest in either side coming out better than the other. I tell people all the time that I have my own divorce judgment that I have to go home and live with, right? So they're going to go home and live with theirs, and what I care about is that they come out with a comfortable agreement, that they can both live with it. And so I'm working with both the husband and the wife, and I'm working through every single detail of their divorce agreement that they would work out if they went to court, all those same agreements. When I'm coaching, mm-hmm. I'm only working with one of the two, either the husband or the wife. And what we're doing is focusing very specifically on the emotions, the priorities, the strategies involved in their particular process. And it might have to do with how they're interacting with their spouse, with how they're reacting to their spouse. It might have to do with their children. It might have to do with their relationship with their attorney. That's really a lot of the time we spend talking about what's going on with their attorney or their mediator and how the client that I'm working with can make most efficient use of their attorney's time. Because attorneys aren't trained to hear about all these emotional needs that you have. But unless those needs are discussed and addressed, you can't necessarily deal with the finances. So as a mediator, part of your remit would be to also discuss the the division of the finances. Yes, absolutely. Now, you know, um, I did a show a few weeks ago, and and we talked about, you know, the divorce rate being at something like 50%. Um, Are loveless marriages the new norm in today's world? 
you know, I don't necessarily know mm. how to compare what those marriages are like today versus what they would have been like in the past. And I also think it's really hard to know if loveless marriages are the norm, because when you're married, you're hopeful. You know, people talk about how, how everybody's fake, right? And you think that they've got this great marriage, and then you find out that they were really divorced and how it was all of a show. Mm-hmm. But, you know, truly, when you're married, you should be protecting each other, and you should be protecting your children. And part of that is not showing all over the world that things are tough at home. So I have respect for people who keep that to themselves, as long as they're not, you know, using that as a form of isolating one or the other. Um, so I think it's hard to say. Right. I do think that um, sexless marriage is certainly an epidemic, and I do see that leading to divorce. And I also, and again, I don't know how much this, this is today versus before, but a lot of the couples that I see who are divorcing, if we sit back and talk about the origin of the marriage, there was no real love there, no romantic love, mm-hmm. at least for one person, when they first got married. So it's not that the marriage has grown loveless and then they've stayed. It's that just like in the past. You know, there were all kinds of more practical reasons why the marriage would happen in the first place. Well, going back to the divorce rate, is divorce becoming contagious? You know, there was a study done about two years ago mm-hmm. where they concluded that, yes, that divorce is contagious, that when one person in a social group, one couple divorces, that it starts to spread throughout the social group. I think that that's – and I people ask about that a lot. You know, you, you, it's, it's like when you want to be pregnant right. and they start to say to you in the office, you know, stay away from the water cooler because everyone's getting pregnant now same thing with divorce. I think there's a real danger in that because to begin with, it's hard enough to keep your friends when you get a divorce. And if word starts to spread that this is contagious, then people are going to exclude their divorced friends even more than already happens. But I also think, you know, that's a chicken in the egg kind of a question. And to me, it's not that it necessarily caught the way that a virus does, but more that once somebody's willing to talk about it, and more that someone who is thinking about a divorce and maybe never spoke to anybody else about it, and they see that their friend is actually doing okay, maybe their friend is happier, they see that their friend's kids are okay, it becomes more okay in their mind to go ahead with it. That's amazing because it seems like everyone's waiting for one person to take the lead and then there's a whole herd ready to follow. But that's the kind of animals we are, right? I mean, you know, I hear people talk about that in marketing all the time, that there are the innovators, and then there are the people who catch on Mm. pretty quickly, and then there are the followers. And, you know, really, when we just stand back and remember that we're animals, you know, I mean, hopefully evolved, it's really not that shocking a concept. Right. So when can one know that enough is enough and it's time for a divorce? I I find that to be something that is so highly individualized. And I tend to start getting phone calls, usually it's from women, Mm -hmm. a good, I'd say, year, year to a half um, prior to their actually going ahead and making a decision about getting a divorce. And I feel that whenever 
one person decides that they are ready and that it's enough, that that's the right time. Nobody can tell you what's right or wrong. And I know when I was in my own very difficult marriage, I had one friend in particular who had been through a divorce herself mm-hmm. and pushed me quite a bit that I should go ahead and get a divorce already. Right. And that, you know, I was just making it harder on everybody staying in the marriage, but I wasn't ready. And I, I just don't think that you're ready until you, you are, and you just have to be in tune with yourself. I think once you find that you're starting to call around and asking for opinions, asking friends, asking a therapist, looking into the divorce options online all the time, I mm. think that's a pretty good indicator well, what, <laughs> that this is something to do. What if, like, you, you talk about if one person's ready, but what if the other person begs to change and, and is determined to work harder at the relationship. How how do you handle that? How do you handle a situation where the other party doesn't want the divorce, though? In, in, in my experience, there is ne- I won't say never. There is rarely a situation in which both people know at the same time that mm. they want a divorce. There's usually one person who wants it and one person who doesn't. And everybody's ideal would be that you both look at each other and have this aha moment and you come to this happy conclusion together and that's what we see happen in movies and in TV and that you you realize it together and then you walk hand in hand into the mediator's office and you conclude the marriage. And that's where you start to see things, I think, more like the the affairs happening and people being sloppy about them. Mm -hmm. The person who wants the divorce and is scared because it really is in some ways it's counterintuitive but it can be a lot harder to be the one who asks for the divorce than the one who's asked right because you have to take that action and you have to be the bad guy so they'll start to leave hints and they'll start to do things that they want to get caught in order to try to spur the other person on but the truth is you know divorce there's no fault anymore in most states for a divorce and you don't have to have caught the other person doing something. Nobody has to have done anything wrong. And if one person has decided 100% that they are getting a divorce, it's going to happen. Right. Now, you know, you talked about bad guys and things like that. And let's take that to abusive relationships. And, when, you know, when we talk about abusive relationships, they're usually considered to be where there's violence and verbal abuse. But what about relationships where there's the silent treatment? Is, is that considered? Is silence considered abusive? Yes, and I, you know, I think everything happens in a spectrum, right? So I don't want to say that just because one day, you know, you were in a mood where you felt like you couldn't talk, and so you asked for some time alone. But the definition of abuse is a repetitive pattern that is meant to control someone else, to control some type of an intimate partner, mm. your child, somebody you have a, a connection with, right? When silence is used as a form of control, which it quite often is, it can be used to isolate, used to make the other person feel guilty or wrong, to get the other person to come forward with an apology. If you're trying to use it to manipulate, then absolutely silence is a form of abuse. And silence can be incredibly, incredibly painful. But what about if silence is also where the other party is so numb at, through shock that they are about to go through a divorce. Um, is, is that abusive still? Well, you know, again, that's where I think it's somewhat situational. You mm. know, if, you have a, a, if you're at a stage where 
the decision's already been made to get a divorce, then there's a healing process kicking in Mm -hmm. for both people. And if one person needs to withdraw, then that's what they need to do because divorce is a process not just of legal separation, but of emotional separation. And and you can't necessarily define that type of violence as abusive in that way. Mm -hmm. You know, I think it really has to be looked at on an individual basis. Now, um, a lot of people ask me, is it wrong to stay in a relationship when one has children or has um, financial problems or cultural issues? Now, you, you probably get these scenarios coming to you in some way, shape, or form. How do you handle it? What do you recommend? Is it wrong to stay in the relationship or is mm-hmm. it wrong to leave the relationship? Is it wrong to stay in a relationship? If you're unhappy? Uh, no, if you have obligations like children or you have um, severe financial issues or even cultural ones. Mm-hmm. I don't think that it's ever wrong to stay or wrong to leave. Mm-hmm. I do think that if you're being abused, it could be very poor judgment to stay, but also when you're subject to abuse, right. your judgment is clouded and you've likely been subject to doubt your own judgment to a large extent. And it's truly, you know, it can be a form of having been brainwashed. So it becomes very, very complicated. Um, so, you know, I think, look, at, there are couples who decide that they're going to stay together, and they make a conscious decision. They're going to stay together until the kids are old enough to go to college, or they're going to stay together until the housing market turns around, mm-hmm. or they're going to stay together until their parents pass away. Mm-hmm. You know, and that within that time, they'll either pretend that everything's okay, but they'll really go lead their separate lives romantically, or they'll agree together that they're going to have to be faithful to each other until that happens. In my mind, as long as the two people are talking about it and both are consenting Mm -hmm. to what the relationship is going to be, I don't know that it can be defined as wrong. But, and again, wrong is just such a subjective term, but I have seen cases where one person has really made that decision. Well, I, they haven't talked openly about it, but they've said to themselves, I've decided I'm going to stay until my child is 18. I've decided I'm going to stay, all, all those things we just, I just said. And they have never shared that with the other person. I think that that is really unfair to everybody involved, including the kids and including their family, because then I do think that it's a, a form of deceit. Now, for those who have financial issues and and they are looking to divorce, what's the cheapest form of divorcing? Well, you know, so there's a wide range of ways that people can divorce. Mm. And to be sure, the cheapest way would just be to do it yourself, right? Anybody can just walk into the courthouse, file a petition. They can go in together. They can write up their agreement together, submit it, and be done with it. I have to say, I don't think that that's really a wise choice to make. I've seen scenarios where that's happened, Mm -hmm. where people have tried to do that, and they've included certain things in their settlement agreement that 
maybe unconstitutional, like no. deciding the religion of the child. And then suddenly you get a letter back from the judge saying, hey, you're coming into my courtroom on such and such day, and it doesn't tell you why, and it's very, very scary, and it can make things take longer and become more complicated. Um, I really believe in mediation as the best form of divorce. Um, even so who can mediate? Someone like you and even a lawyer? Mediators, you know, it's, it's a really interesting field right now. It's, um, divorce mediation is becoming increasingly popular, mm-hmm. but it's also completely, I wouldn't say completely, highly unregulated. So right now, anybody can go walk down the street and open up an office and say divorce mediator, mm-hmm. and they're doing nothing illegal or wrong. So typically a family law mediator would be somebody with a social work background like I have, an attorney, um, some type of a mental health profession. And there's also now more programs, master's degree programs in conflict resolution specifically. But I think the important thing when people are looking for a mediator is to make sure that the mediator is affiliated with one of the larger mediation organizations, like I'm a member of the Southern California Mediation Association, that they have liability insurance, that they've taken courses both in mediation and also specifically in family law, and that they've been working for a while and really know what they're doing. So someone like you, if they went to you, how much would you charge? My rate for mediation is $400 an hour. And how many hours do you take to resolve it? Well, so that's what was going to be the next step, was I was going to say that it's, you know, sometimes I feel like a def- <laughs> I use car salesman a little bit in this field because what do people want to know up front? They want to know how much is this going to cost me mm-hmm. down the road. I'll say that in California right now, the average cost of a divorce in the traditional courtroom sense is $95,000. Whoa. Total. So that's split halfway between the parties. And so mediation is, I would say on average also, it would be more like $9,000, $10,000 for the entire divorce. Now, that being said, I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make either choosing a mediator or an attorney is looking at their hourly rate because what's really going to affect the overall cost of the divorce mm-hmm. is going to be how comfortable you feel with the mediator, how efficient they are, and how quickly you're able to resolve things. A lot of that's going to depend on the couple. You know, there was one couple I worked with who spent a good three hours in mediation dealing with an ashtray that they had stolen together on a trip, and it was purely <laughs> sentimental value. I mean, there was no monetary value to this hmm. whatsoever. And so they spent you know, three hours' worth of mediation dollars on this. But in a courtroom case, you know, that still would have had the same emotional effect, and it could have cost $10,000 for one day of in, you know, in court trying to address it. And what's the judge going to care about it? They're not going to sit down and talk to you about, well, what does that ashtray really mean to you? So, you know, it's really, I think, important when you're looking for a mediator or an attorney, if you go that route, to make sure that you have a connection, a comfort level, a bond with that person you're hiring because you have to trust them that they're going to move you forward and keep the cost down and not just churn this out for as much as they can make. Well, the ashtray was stolen in the first place. But... Well, we won't get into the minor details. <laughs> <laughs> I don't do criminal <laughs> Here's another thing. What are the available resources online 
that couples can use to sort of help people like you who are mediating? Because the more homework they do, the easier it is for you to complete the job in a smaller amount of time. Well, yes and no. I mean, I would say that the first thing would be to talk with your own mediator about what they consider the best resources. Mm -hmm. And whenever a couple starts working with me, what I ask them to promise, although I would never, you know, it's more of a pinky swear than it's something that we put in writing, is that they're going to save negotiating between themselves and they're going to save the Googling and talk about things when they come back into the office because there are so many different sites that you can find out there. But what are your top three? What I happen to, oh, well, so I actually, I'm, I'm an advisor for this um, this site, but I I came on as a, an advisor because I'm so... Which site is that? Um, enamored of what they're doing. It's called divorcebuddy.co. And it was started by two people who had gone through their own incredibly difficult divorces. Mm-hmm. They're not divorce professionals. My background, and they really felt that it was very isolating and very scary, and that the court system was just overwhelming and, in many ways, corrupt. Right. And so, the idea behind DivorceBuddy.co is to create a community where people can come online. They can have a forum where they talk to each other. They can take online courses. Even what you asked me, you know, how do you know if you're ready? One of the first courses that was put together on there was how should, how do I know if I'm ready for a divorce right now? Oh, so, so it's like a quiz. Find coaches. Yeah, it's like these little quizzes, and you know, I think that uh, Jeremy and Renee, the founders, they have a great sense of humor, and um, we all try to approach it that way because really, you'll go crazy. I think if you can't find the lightness in the well, hard parts of life. Here's a question for you: um, Some women who are um, homemakers and are going through a divorce. They're obviously a little more vulnerable um, than someone who's got a career. Mm -hmm. So they can go to divorcebuddy.co, but are there any other websites they could use? You know, I think the important thing is to find one or two that work for you. I wouldn't, you know, I just hesitate to to, to point out any other specific site. You know, no, but I someone's coming to you for help. You've got to give them something that they can look at after they've met you. So what would you recommend from a site perspective? Well, it depends. If they're in a very high-conflict situation, which you know it turns out that a lot of times there are, mm-hmm. uh, there's a book I recommend by Bill Eddy, mm-hmm. and it's called Splitting, um, Protecting Yourself When Divorcing Somebody with a Borderline or Narcissistic Personality Disorder. And I think mm-hmm. that's a phenomenal book. But and if- I actually recommend that when people get that, that they read the last chapters first. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as websites are concerned, there's also a forum called psychopathfree.com and another called Out of the Fog. Psychopathfree. Um, psychopathfree.com. And it might be dot .org, but dot or, okay. Psychopathfree for sure. And I love that one because it talks about incredibly difficult divorce situations. Mm-hmm. And also is very validating and uplifting. It doesn't make you feel like you're going to just be left to wither away. Right. Now, when you have sort of counseled and, and, and met with couples who are going through this sort of uh, process, um, do you sort of encourage them to treat divorce like a form of rebirth? Because I'm sure, um, you know, before and during the process, they're going through such emotional upheaval. 
mm-hmm. their lives. Uh, but I guess once they're done with it, do they express some form of regret or uh, are they actually looking forward to their so-called new life? I have yet to hear anyone, either professionally or personally, say that they regret their divorce. Really? They may regret how they went about it. Mm-hmm. They may regret things that happened during the marriage that they feel led to it. But once they've actually finished the divorce, no, I think that people are, are generally relieved. In fact, quite often it's the person who wanted the divorce left, um, less who at the end is actually the most relieved. It's interesting. Um, I don't necessarily tell people to look at it as a rebirth because I think rebirth implies washing away and completely starting new. And, you know, you've got your kids. And, and I think that the reason there are, you know, like you mentioned before the 50% divorce rate, mm. the statistics for second marriage are something like 63% ending in divorce. And right. then for a third marriage, it's like 75 I think the way to prevent that from happening is you have to look at what happened and you have to take it with you. And I, I feel like it's more of a restorative force. You can go back to getting to know who you are, seeing what led you, because nobody's without responsibility. Even if you were the abused party, mm-hmm. it's not that there's something you did where you deserved the abuse, but there's something that made you vulnerable to it. Right. And so finding that in yourself and figuring that out before you move forward into your next relationships, I think is crucial. Now, you've seen a lot of these cases. So in your, can you tell us a story in terms of what's the most vindictive divorce that you've ever seen? Well, probably the worst I've seen started out the first night that I even met with the couple. Um, I received a call from the wife accusing me of of having an affair <laughs> with the husband after the first you know individual meeting that I had with him. Mm. And then they were still living in the same house at that point, and I was receiving phone calls every day for a good, I would say, two weeks or so until um, one of them moved out calling me instead of calling 911 on each other. And one would be following the other round, filming them with their phone and making all kinds of threats. And so they'd be calling me and I'd have to tell them, okay, you stay in this room for this long and you stay in that room for this long and sort of assigning them their spaces. It was really ugly. And they were both in severe distress and it was affecting their work, it was affecting their health. But by the time that we got to, I would say about four or five months in, one had moved out, they were starting to see each other every once in a while because they didn't have kids, but they were exchanging their pets, and when we would have mediation mediation sessions, they would offer to go buy, one would buy the other one lunch while they were coming and going, Mm. and I would never think they'd become best friends, but they were able to deal with it. Now, if that had gone to court, they would have ripped each other to shreds. Wow. And actually, my, my favorite, <laughs> I, I, I find um, people just make the best statements. During one of our, my sessions with them, um, there was a big uh, outburst at, right at the very beginning, and I separated them, and I went into one room 
with the husband, and he had been accusing the wife of taking prescription drugs without a prescription, which I don't think that was actually happening, but she had been very, very upset. Hmm. And he turned to me as we went into the separate room and said, if she's going to be taking the Xanax, can she at least take it before we come to these meetings? (laughs) Can you tell her she has to? (laughs) You know, and he was dead serious, but it was really, you know, it was like something that you could see in one of these dramedy kind of of shows. Mm. But... You know, it just show, it shows the um, the pain of trying to get along during such a difficult time. You wrote an article recently on yourtango.com on revenge porn. Yes. And part of the vindictiveness also can take this form where, um, you know, everyone's taking a selfie these days and, and not necessarily with their clothes on. Mm-hmm. Um, is this a new weapon that's being used in relationships? Yes, I think that it, it's fairly new. I mean, it's been going on for a number of years now. Mm. But it's the kind of thing that, you know, the technology wasn't available before. And it, much like we talk about cyberbullying with kids, yeah. this is something that I, now that I've found out about it myself... Have you been a victim of it? Been a victim. Well, I was very close to being a victim. I was definitely a victim of the harassment and and the bullying and the threats. Tell tell, tell our listeners what what happened. So what happened in my situation, I had been in a relationship after my divorce Mm -hmm. with somebody for almost a year, and we had been broken up for almost a year. And during our relationship, um, he would ask me when he would go to work sometimes to send him, you know, a picture during the day. And so I did, you know, I was in a committed relationship with this man. We were in love. We did have conversations about getting married. Mm. And I would send him pictures. They never had my face in them. And it would cross my mind every once in a while, you know, this would be really bad if one of his friends got a hold of it or something happened. But I don't work in a field where it would really be a big problem. So I didn't think about it that much. Mm. So we've been apart for over a year. And I had dated back in the summer somebody that he knows just really briefly for about three weeks. And that person um, got mad at me and decided to get back at me and so called him, my ex-boyfriend, and let him know about it. Hmm. My ex-boyfriend, this was about a month ago, started calling me. Now, I also have to backtrack and say that about two months after my ex-boyfriend and I broke up, he met somebody. Two weeks later, they drove to Las Vegas and got married. So he's married right now. Mm Mm-hmm. So he's married. He finds out that I had dated this person. He starts calling me nonstop. First, he threatens that his wife is going to beat me up. Mm -hmm. Then he starts threatening that he still has my pictures, and he's going to start posting them. And he sent me this by email, by text message. He left me all kinds of horrible voicemail messages. And what he specifically was saying was that if I didn't remove my business page from Facebook that he would post them on my business page. Hmm. And he actually did post a few really negative, untrue comments on my business page that I was able to delete. But then he was threatening that he was going to do this with the the pictures. And then I banned him from my Facebook business page, so then he started threatening me that if I didn't remove my personal Facebook page as well, that he would post them there somehow, and he threatened to send them to my ex-husband to try to affect my custody of my children. 
Um, it was really horrible, and it was just, you know, nonstop. My phone was ringing. And as I was receiving these messages from him, I happened to have, I had Facebook open because I was looking to see what would happen, right. and I happened to get a message from a friend of mine just saying hi, and I explained what was going on. And that friend of mine started sending me links to websites. He sent me to endrevengeporn.org. Right and womenagainstrevengeporn.org. And I hadn't, first of all, I had no idea that this was such a large phenomenon that was happening. It just happened to coincide with the timing of when Hunter Moore, who was the king of revenge porn, had just pled guilty and is about to be sentenced for having run a revenge porn site. And... Um, I didn't know that there's also an act called the um, DCMA, the Digital Copy, Digital DMCA, Digital Copyright Millennium Act, DCMA, um, that actually says that if you take a picture of yourself, if you take a selfie, yeah. even if you email, text it, hand it, give it in whatever form to somebody else, you own it. And so they don't have a right to repost it anywhere without your permission. Why didn't you go to the police? You know, that crossed my mind at first. Mm. But based on my experience doing what I do for a living and having worked with so many cases that do invo involve abuse, it's not that I would discourage other people from going for restraining orders, but my experience is that restraining orders don't really do a whole lot. Uh, if somebody wants to come do something, they will anyway. Uh, I... I also didn't know about that Copyright Act yet, so my thought was, well, I sent it to him, so I think he owns it. You know, so I just didn't know. And then, you know, I thought that they would probably think it was funny, they may not take it seriously. Hmm. I did consider calling uh, the National Domestic Abuse Hotline, because what a lot of people don't realize is that if you have a relationship and it's boyfriend-girlfriend, even if they're not your spouse, it is considered domestic violence. And so you can still be covered by the same protections. So if some of our listeners are going through similar issues, what are the top three things they need to be doing to stop this? Well, I would say that the first thing that they should do if they found that that had happened mm. would be to go to – first, they can make a phone call to the um, Cyber Civil Rights um, Institute hotline, okay. which is um, 844 878 CCRI. And the second and thing? They can get help. They can go to revengeporn.com or womenagainstrevengeporn.com, and they have links. with. It walks you through how you can contact law enforcement, attorneys you can find, mm. see what the laws are in your state, and how you can file a report. And the third one? And the third one would, in my opinion, be not to engage with the person who is trying to threaten you. That's what they want. You see, in all and of so this, in all of this, in, I would have thought you go to the police station and you give them their details and the police should be calling that person and saying, look, we're aware that you're doing this uh, and you should stop before it goes any further. I just, I'm just well, throwing it out there. You have to know the person who's targeting you. You know, in my situation, you know, my ex-boyfriend... Well, um, you'd have to know, I would think, because if someone, if you're sending uh, a nude photo of yourself or someone's taking a nude photo of you... Right. Yeah. So, but I'm saying some people aren't deterred. They're not deterred by the police. Mm. 
there are people who don't care, you know, especially if you're dealing with any type of a narcissistic personality or an addictive personality. Right. You know, they get into situations where they think that they know more. Is it a criminal offense or a civil offense, do you know? Uh, it you know, it depends on your state. Mm-hmm. In California, it's part of the penal code. It's considered a criminal misdemeanor. You know, I'm not an attorney, right. um, sure. but that's the information that I found. Hmm. And then it really depends on your state from there. Now you've been but again, d- that's why I think calling the hotline first mm-hmm. to find out where you are, should I call the police? Maybe the answer is yes. Right. Now, you've been divorced before, right? Yes. And you've seen divorces of all natures. Uh, does it make you want to marry again? You know, I first left the marriage thinking I was done with marriage. Mm. <laughs> and the truth is I don't – It's dating right now is very different for me than it was in my 20s because there isn't a goal of marriage and there isn't a goal of having children. I have children. But, but deep you know, inside there must be a goal. Drawn, well, I still find myself – well, there's a goal of being with somebody. Right. Right, and the goal is nobody wants to be hurt, so you would be with somebody who you'll be with for the rest of your life. That doesn't necessarily have to mean marriage. No, it doesn't, but you know the way we're all brainwashed, marriage seems to sort of ink the ownership of each other. That's true. And, I, you know, for me, initially my feeling was never again. Mm. My parents happen to have a wonderful marriage. They've been married 47 years. They're madly in love with each other still. And I started thinking about it, and I thought, you know, I don't want my children's only view of marriage to have been a bad one that ended in divorce, right? So if I do end up in love and in a relationship that I feel, you know, it makes sense to me, should be that type of a commitment, then I'm absolutely open to it. I do think that there's a lot of disconnect within the institution itself between the romantic emotional pieces of marriage and the legal pieces and mm. knowing as much as I do it's very complex and it's a little bit hard to put my finger on how I would fix that for myself which I think you know that's why the whole system is struggling it's, it's a very complicated system would you do a prenup I don't think I would buy if it was important to my partner mm-hmm. I'd be willing to but prenups have the Family law codes that have to do with prenups have one of my favorite um, points in it, which at the end says, you know, the prenup is valid as long as it meets all of these different standards. And at the end, anything else the court thinks is relevant. So it's basically, you know, the prenup will be binding as long as you follow these things. Mm-hmm. And if the judge decides so, but the judge could completely wipe it all out if he wants. You know, it's, it's, such a, it's, it's just not really a solid form of protection anyway. Oh, it's not. I thought it was. It, you know, again, everything depends on your state and it depends on your judge, but prenups can be messed with all the so time. So even if the state approves of such a thing, the judge can wipe it off in any state? Right, because there are certain requirements that the prenup has to have met. Wow. And if you can somehow prove to your judge that a certain requirement wasn't met, mm. then... It's null and void. Oh, amazing. I, 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 thought it, I thought it was watertight. Yeah. Well, as long as the conditions are followed, I guess. 
you know, it's just, this is the whole thing about court. You know, it's really like going to Vegas. And an attorney, a real estate attorney I know, has one of my favorite little toys in his office that I haven't been able to find and I want. But it's a little roulette wheel, mm-hmm. and it says around the edge of it what your judge's decision might be on an, any given day. <laughs> and it, it has about 10 different variations of different orders a judge could make. And he'll basically say to your client when they say, well, how good's my case? He'll say, spin the wheel. Wow. Now, yeah, in your, in your marriage that broke up, what do you think were the three leading factors that led to the divorce? Well, I would say for sure, number one would be not having known each other long enough and dated for long enough before getting engaged and getting married. Uh, we only knew each other for a month before we got engaged. Wow. And another five months after that until we got married. And I think that that's one of the few things that my ex-husband and I would answer <laughs> in the same way. Um, I also, I would say number two would be that I did not trust my own instincts. Your instincts um, were saying no? My instincts were saying no. Mm-hmm. And for a variety of reasons, I felt that I had locked myself into something and I didn't, even though I was being told that I had a way out, you know, mm. I had family and, and people who did say to me, you know, you can still back out before right. it happened. Um, I felt that this was a done deal. And the truth is in life, it's never a done deal. Uh, and I would say That third would be not thinking really about, well, it would be a few things. It would be not allowing certain things that should be a priority to be a priority because they seem frivolous. Like, I knew from the beginning, it bothered me that I didn't think that we really had fun together. I didn't think that we, I thought that we saw things very much in line. We had a lot in common. We had great intellectual conversation. And all of that remained true. Yeah, but it's nice to be frivolous, though. But exactly. But we didn't have fun. Mm. You took everything I seriously. Also, I don't want to say anything specific, but I would also say oh, that go on. in line with the fun, I think that if the sex isn't good, you shouldn't get married. And, and, and because those two Did you ever things, think the sex would become better? Um, hoped it would get better and certainly never thought it would get worse oh, okay. or that it would disappear. And I think that those things are, are the kinds of things that people look at and they say, well, you know, that's selfish and I shouldn't focus on that. Mm. You know, that's selfish. It's about so much more important. It's about what kind of a father and... And, and, and what kind of a provider and what kind of a person. And if we have fun, if the sex is good, like that doesn't really matter so much. But those are the things that I think really get couples through the hardest times. I know. Well, my philosophy tends to be the fool who said, less is more, never had more. Exactly. Um, Ariana, how can our listeners get in touch with you? I'm available always by email mm-hmm. at a Jarrett. Right. J-E-R-E-T at ajmediation.com. Mm-hmm. They can go to my website, uh, which is also ajmediation.com. 
uh, I have my profile on the Your Tango website, right. um, which is yourtango.com slash um, experts slash Ariana Jarrett. And they can also reach me by phone at um, 310-808-8047. Ariana, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and your experience. Thank you so much. It's fun talking with you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. Follow me on Twitter at Vip Jaswal on my Facebook page. Just type in Vip Jaswal Report. A special shout-out of thanks to my wonderful team, William Sanchez and Rick Buser. I wish you a wonderful evening tonight with your loved ones. And until next Sunday, have a productive and a very happy week ahead.